You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, Jürgen. Добро пожаловать в Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven.
Hello, Lubin, and a dear welcoming to all of our listeners to the online podcast and known as Spotify. I'm Nicolas Rojas, and welcome to the segment of Full Interviews with The Voice, and today with Philip. How are you, Philip? I'm doing fantastic myself. I welcome you all to this very special segment of Full Interviews with The Voice, where we go to infinity and beyond by talking about stars, exoplanets, and revealing the mysteries of the universe. What you just heard are stellar sounds, waves emitted by very, very distant stars. And actually, talking about stars, what a better moment to introduce our special guest than now. So welcome, Katrin Kallenberg, an artist and astrophysicist. Thank you, happy to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Uh, so basically, I, <laughs> if I, can summarize it, I, I try to understand our world better, our, our universe, and I try to do that in different ways, and I try to communicate that knowledge or that uh, experience to others. I think that summarizes it, but there's different exponents of that, and one of them is my research in astronomy. Okay, so if I understand well, you research about stars, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. Okay, well, I think uh, we can start our interview then with our first question. And I think everybody wants to know, how did your passion for astronomy ignite? <laughs> I think I can ask you the same thing, right? Because you're also interested in astronomy. For me personally, yep. it started as, as a kid uh, looking up at the, at the sky. So that's how it started. And I was, I was very young. Um, how was it for you? Well, actually, it was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson who actually inspired me. You actually have his book today, I Death think. in Black Hole. Um, yeah, that's how it started, just watching him and just learning about the stars and the different phases of a star. It's, um, it, really, it really breaks your mind, you know, mm -hmm. knowing how small we are in, a, in such a large universe. Yeah, yeah, I think that's also what attracted me to this particular science, because you have some really mind-boggling concepts in astrophysics. Uh, one of them is, is time and how relative it is. Uh, another one is space distances. So all the things that on our Earth, uh, we see it in human scale. Actually, there's much more that exists out there. And, and that really caught my attention from a young age. So that's what kept me really interested in this particular science. Yep, very interesting. So uh, we've heard in the news recently that, um, you know, companies like SpaceX and Boeing are making headlines. And they're bringing a lot of attention to space exploration, which I'm very fond of, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do you think that in these days right now, astronomy is getting more attention from younger generations? Um, it's hard for me to compare with the, like decades ago. I, but I see that uh, my students, they're, they're very enthusiastic. And for example, at the KU Leuven, we have seen in the past years uh, a really steep rise in the number of students starting physics courses, um, which which is very interesting because generally that's not the most uh, favorite topic to choose when you come from secondary school. Uh, and it might have to do with some discoveries that happened recently. So I think it plays. I think uh, having more uh, space-related topics in the media is definitely that 
something that has a lot of influence on, on young minds and it's something very good for attracting young people to STEM subjects. Yeah, I actually think that Neil deGrasse Tyson has the same uh, perspective as mm -hmm. you did. Basically, he stated that, um, you know, of course, in these days, astronomy is getting more, uh, more attention because astronomical events are making headlines in the news mm -hmm. and, you know, kids see the news, so you don't even need to explain how cool being an astronomer is because they already know that. Right, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, it is cool. It's cool to everyone, but especially to, to young people. So the media are playing an immense role if they, if they announce when something happens and something happens very frequently in astrophysics. It's so good for attracting young people to science. Yeah. So um, our second question. So basically, uh, we, a few weeks ago, I assisted uh, to your concert, Music of the Stars, which um, you're one of the main organizers, if I understand well. We are three people. Three so people. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So it's a co-production with two professional musicians, two friends, Waldo uh, Heuns and Hugh Desmond, a pianist and a violinist. And so uh, this this concept, the idea was born several years ago, actually, but now it has uh, it has resulted in this very, very nice production called Music of the Stars, in which you hear fantastic music played by these seasoned musicians. At the same time, you get to see images uh, based on NASA and ESA material of uh, different, um, yeah, different very nice things that are to see in the universe and that are being observed and uh, i also provide some some cosmic perspective in before and in between the pieces yeah i was uh, i was actually about to say that the images were beautiful first of all but i also you know the music really really inspired me mm -hmm. and so my question is to you how did you meet these two very talented artists mm -hmm. Um, I went back into my into my email my mailbox and I saw that uh, there was a mail from Waldo exactly three years ago, uh, and at the time the, the the duo Hugh and Waldo are a duo duo doppio stile, uh, they've been collaborating for a long time and they've been doing very nice interdisciplinary projects because besides being uh, artists, musicians, they're also scientists. They are, uh, um, Hugh is a, a physicist who is also a philosopher of, uh, of science and Waldo also I think did a PhD in musicology and or philosophy. So they are, uh, they're very uh, learned people as well. Yep. So they have a lot to say about different things. And so they had this wish to do a production specifically around astrophysical topics. So that's how we got in touch. Very, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so I know there's uh, some missions mm -hmm. that keep being launched for further research in, uh, in astronomy and just discovering our universe. Plenty of them. Yeah. And uh, so I know you've been involved with the, uh, the Kepler mission. Right. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Kepler is named after the astronomer who several centuries ago discovered the laws of Kepler. Jonas Kepler? Now. Yeah, exactly, yep. that guy. Uh, so he really, uh, what, what he did is something I'm using every day to interpret the data that I, that I see. Uh, but we named a space mission after him, and this mission has uh, the aim of uh, finding planets circling other stars. Um, and before this mission was launched, we were asking the question, how common are planets around other stars? And thanks to Kepler, we know now that they're very common. So 
it's been a great honor and pleasure to work on this mission and there's been so many breakthroughs with this mission. I have worked particularly on the stars observed with Kepler, so um, can I say more about it? Yeah, of course, of course, be my guest. <laughs> so, um, so I have worked mostly on the stars that Kepler observed, because if you want to find a planet, you have to know its star. Uh, planets are much, much smaller than stars. They don't emit light like stars. So you can actually mostly only find them indirectly. So you have to derive the presence of a planet from the light of its star. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes. How you do it? Yes, absolutely. So what Kepler actually does is it uh, looks at one part of the sky uh, and it has it was looking for several years at one chunk of the sky in which it was keeping an eye on about 170,000 stars non-stop. Wow. And uh, if a star is just by itself, generally you would assume that its brightness is constant. Uh, but if a star is orbited by planets, then if the planet happens to be along the line of sight, if it happens to sometimes pass in front of a star, then it will, while it passes, dim a little bit of the light of the star. You can compare it with a street lamp and you have flies circling around the street lamp. And if you have many flies, they actually, they will block a bit of the light of that street lamp. So that's what we're trying to do with Kepler. Yep. And is one of the goals of Kepler, uh, maybe someday discovering another civilization out there? It's the first step towards that goal. <laughs> and so a logical question here would be, do you believe that there are aliens in the universe? Um, I would be really surprised if there were no aliens elsewhere. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if you heard about the Fermi paradox. Yes. Yeah. Could, do you know, could you explain a little bit what it is to our viewers, to our listeners? Uh, well, Fermi was a, a, a scientist uh, of, uh, with a very good reputation who asked himself the question, where are they? Because there's so many planets and if there are, uh, yeah, there's so many stars, if there's planets circling these stars and if just looking at ourselves, we are, we are here, we're active, we're sending spacecraft into space. Um, why don't we see them? Why, where are they? So that was the question he asked. And that's an answer, a question we're trying to answer now as astrophysicists. Because to be honest, we haven't seen any sign of life yet. But we also know it's very, very hard to show that there's life on a planet. Yep. If it's so far away. And um, I know this has been a big issue recently. Mm -hmm. But people, some people think that why bother invest, you know, in, in space when we can just solve our problems right here on Earth? What, what, would, what would you say to these people? What would be the reason to invest in, in space and in, in space, space exploration? Space research, space yeah. exploration. Thank you for that question. And it's true that uh, I get this question uh, quite regularly uh, and it's a very uh, well-grounded question because it's true that we have a lot of problems to solve on our planet uh, but I have several things to say to that one of them is that uh, by doing fundamental research 
uh, we actually get to understand much better how our own planet and it's it's how we, how it's working, and actually along the way we get to uh, make discoveries that can help improve life on this planet. Uh, just think about the space race and all the things that are a result of the space race. A lot of our technology, including cell phones, uh, are a result of uh, trying to get to the moon. Yep. So that's one that's one thing I have to say. And then a, a second thing I have to say is that um, I think it is very beneficial for human beings to be aware uh, where they are, uh, of their position uh, on this planet. So. I call that cosmic perspective. We, um, it's good to know and to be aware that we are one of millions of species on a planet and to know how fragile a planet is and to know how rare a habitable planet is. So I think just having this knowledge can also help give people the right perspective in dealing with the problems on Earth. Yeah, it's, um, yeah astronomy is it's very humbling. To know yes. that you know we're so small in such a big universe that our atoms came from the nuclei of stars yeah. of very very distant stars it's 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 really amazing yeah yeah it, it is uh, yeah. it's humbling and i think uh you humans need that humbling yeah carl sagan used to call it a you know astronomy being a very humbling experience absolutely yeah yeah want to become a an an engineer, a space engineer. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's one of my goals to, or my, one of my dreams, let's say, mm -hmm. to help in the colonization of our solar system. Yeah. And I would love to uh, to work on um, our effort in colonizing Mars first of all, because yeah. this is this has been a very big thing recently with yeah. uh, you know companies like SpaceX and Boeing trying to start a new space race basically to yeah. Mars. And. Um, would you participate? Of course. Would you go? Well, if people can assure me that I can come back, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so that's um, why you have to develop the technology. That... Yes, that's why I want to be an engineer. Yes. But yeah. one day, if you know, if 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 me coming back is certain, of course, take me there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, what do you think about that, actually, about this new space race that has begun towards Mars? I think it's it's healthy and normal and, and natural to want to try it. Uh, I think we have to be realistic in what is possible right now, but I, I think it's a, it's a good goal to have uh, to go to Mars and to think about, they call it terraforming yep. Mars. Um, so I would I would love to in my lifetime to see people go there and and manage to survive there. So. And first of all, um, do you think it is a space race? It, do you think it is a space race of the caliber that you know we had in the um, in the sixties, seventies, eighties? Because that was a very interesting space race because it was framed in the Cold War. You had. Uh, the, the US and Russia that were really very close ties in getting to the moon. Uh, I think now uh, it's, it is different also in the sense that now other nations uh, are having their space programs. Uh, and so we also see now the privatization of uh, space industry, which is, a, which is an interesting development and that, that will give a totally different dynamic. To this space race but i think it is uh, it is a race in a way uh, but at the same time it also we see more collaboration uh, 
for example, you also see now that some um, some NASA missions are launched by commercial companies, uh, and and it's not just. NASA, not just ESA, but there's much more collaboration. Yeah. The Indian Space Agency, for instance, exactly. has been launching yeah. a lot yes. recently. Yes, exactly. India, China, yep. Nigeria has a space program. There's talk about an African space program, Pan-African space program. So it's it's uh, it's it's nice to see. At the same time, we should be aware of uh, space debris. <laughs> so, oh, that's a big <laughs> issue. Yes, yeah. So uh, that's something that will probably become a whole new field of research, uh, or it is already becoming that way, the study of how to clean up space around Earth. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know when people usually talk about space exploration, they also uh, talk about new ways of, let's say, um, uh, they basically talk about asteroid mining being the future. Mm -hmm. Right. About how much money you can make with asteroids, about all these elements present on these asteroids. And so do you think that asteroid mining would be a technology or something that we would do in the future? Uh, I have some astrophysics colleagues who are involved in, in these programs. Uh, so it is taken very seriously, both by the industry and by the by the scientists. Uh, we are now able to land spacecraft on uh, on a comet, for example, like we've done with Rosetta. Yep. Uh, the mining, yeah, you, you have some... The mining doesn't necessarily have to be for commercial purposes. It can also be for scientific purposes. Of course. Uh, bring yep. back stuff that we will investigate in order to see whether uh, there are traces of, of, of uh, life uh, present in comets, in asteroids, because there are hypotheses that that state that that's how life came to Earth. Yeah. So it would be a way to explore that. I also had a question, actually, um, and it's related to the size of our universe. Mm -hmm. um, could you remind us how old the universe actually is? Um, so we think our universe is about 13.6 billion years old. But there's it's plus or minus. And so with that in mind, can the universe ever be ha have a bigger size than two times 13.8? Um, basically, because the universe is it's expanding in two ways, basically. Mm -hmm. So and people say that the universe is around 47 billion years, uh, light, light years. years across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is mm -hmm. it possible? Yeah. How can time have enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you think of the light speed, eh, that's and you think of the speed of light, which cannot be um, surpassed <laughs> according to Einstein, then it's it's it it yeah it it doesn't uh, it doesn't add up. So, but um, we we think that at the beginning, uh, the early days of the universe, there was a phase called inflation, in which space itself expanded very rapidly, and uh, that that would have given rise to this. Uh, eventual size of the universe as we seem to observe it but there's so much uh, research still to be done in, in this area and i think uh, the new discovery of gravitational waves oh. is gonna play an important role predicted by in, by einstein uh, they were predicted by einstein 100 years ago if i'm not uh, mistaken yes, yes exactly a century ago. ago and then they were one century later they were found. So that was a very interesting discovery. 
And uh, I think this, uh, these waves, these gravity waves, these vibrations of space-time itself um, will give us a whole new window on the universe and also its early days. Uh, so I think cosmological questions will um, receive new ways of getting to the answers yeah. through gravitational wave ast astrophysics. And what did, how did these gravitational waves come into existence? What created them? Um, the ones we discovered? Yeah, the ones we discovered. Okay. Yes. So we discovered uh, them about, uh, yeah, there were, I think it's, it's a bit of over two years ago now that we found them. Actually, uh, there are on Earth now some extremely sensitive measuring instruments, uh, interferometers, we call them, um, that can measure when space itself, itself contracts and expands. Uh, and such a tiny expansion contraction, such a tiny oscillation of space itself. Um, and I say tiny, I, when I say tiny, it is smaller than the size of an atom. So it's really tiny. Um, it was discovered through these interferometers. And what we think and what we're pretty sure, because our models um, lead to that, what would have caused this vibration in space-time are two massive black holes. Uh, a black hole is um, basically a, an extremely dense object that is so dense that uh, not even light can escape from it. That's what, what's a black hole and you have them in different sizes and different masses and these were what we call uh, intermediate mass black holes. There's different definitions from them, but for them what, what we think is they had each about 30 solar masses. They were spiraling each other and then um, they basically merged. Yep. So they kissed and they merged. And in this merging, um, a tremendous amount of energy was uh, released. Uh, it went together with the loss of a, a bit of mass, three solar masses. Uh, there you have Einstein's formula coming in, E, the energy, equals M, the mass, times C, the speed of light, squared. Uh, so the mass that was lost was released into energy and it sent a wave through space-time. And this wave through space-time was captured by our instruments about two and a half years ago. And how was he, how was he able to actually predict these? Did he, uh, did he look at these black, how, how is it possible? <laughs> yeah, it's a hypothetical, it, it's in a way, it, at, certainly at the time of, uh, of Einstein, these, were, these are hypothetical objects, but they, 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 uh, they follow from basically, if you compress matter so dense, then at some point uh, life can, light cannot escape. And then there are, you can model interactions between the, those. And then if you look um, in Einstein's fashion way, it's Einstein's language of describing this space-time, you can see what the effect would be of two such objects merging. They, they rotate each other and then they merge. And if you do these calculations, you see that they predict exactly what we saw. And uh, talking about rotations, actually, mm -hmm. let me 
talk a little about about uh, a little bit about our solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, why is everything on the same plane? Why isn't why don't planets orbit around the sun in different planes? Um, good question. It is because uh, well, if you see how our solar system formed, uh, you can compare it with a, a very gigantic cosmic pancake that is rotating, and at the center, our sun condensed to become a star. So to to it started to do fusion and then it generated light. It became a star. The rest of this matter in this pancake, it um, it actually condensed to form the planets. But by this rotation, actually, when you rotate something, you have uh, you have this centripetal force that yep. makes things go out. So that flattens the the whole structure. Oh. So that's why you get these flat structures. Yep. And within these structures, gravity is working and it condenses to make the planets. Very interesting. Yeah. So yep. that's why we see most planetary systems being um, around one plane. We see exceptions. Even within our solar system, Pluto, for example, is inclined. Uh, but of course, you have many dynamics in this system because there's so many bodies moving around and that causes deviations from the flat structure. And uh, coming back to our solar system again and the mm-hmm. planets in it, uh, why does our planet spin? What causes the rotations of planets? And why do they have, why do some planets have uh, a different kind of spin? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in general, everything is in motion. Uh, if we see uh, um, in our universe, things are in motion. And so if you th- see where, uh, for example, our sun, it originated from this uh, spinning disk, uh, which gave it also its initial spin, and then the planets themselves as well. Um, I still have to find my first object that is not spinning at all. <laughs> so things are spinning. Is it but possible for something to not spin? Um, Well, if you look at bigger scales, everything is in motion, of course, but if you look, uh, it depends where you put your inertial system and then you can say, okay, this is, um, this is in rest, (laughs) but rest is a very relative concept uh, in space. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you ask yourselves, why do planets spin fast and others slow? It really depends on on the initial conditions of the system and the way they're the the yeah the initial conditions and then the the what you call the boundary conditions. Uh, so the whole situation, the whole context, uh, results in how the planet is spinning today, like our Earth-Moon system, for example. Yep. Yeah. Actually, I also wanted to ask you something. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about stars emitting waves contracting and expanding and yeah. you know being able to produce music stellar mm-hmm. sounds um, but how are planets able to do that planets do the same and uh, our, our earth does the same so seismologists of earth geoseismologists they they study the vibrations of our planet and if you study earthquakes then you can learn a lot more about the internal structure of our own planet so we do the same for stars and then we call it astroseismology um, but in general Everything, um, every object, like this table, if you hit it, uh, it will produce, uh, it will vibrate and produce a sound in the process. 
um, similar thing with, with planets. So, and, and what hits it, what hits the planet? Yeah, you have plate tectonics, you have the internal structure that might set off a sound, set off a vibration that we can then record and analyze. And for stars, it's a similar process. There are processes that cause the star that, that like trigger the vibration and then it goes on and we can measure it. Yep. Apart from being a researcher, I saw that you bring your cello everywhere you go. So <laughs> not everywhere. Not everywhere. <laughs> no. Well, when when we have this performance of music of the stars, I just use it not as a not not to make music because that's what what the others do. I produce sound with it, and I explain the concept of sound and how um, yeah how physicists see sound and how sound waves can be used to study the stars. So that's what I use it. So in in these performances that have to do with my research for a wide audience, I do use my, my cello. And why exactly do you use the cello? Does it, why, why is it your favorite instrument? Uh, it, it is my favorite uh, Western instrument. Um, it's um, why the cello? Well, it, I, I, I play the cello at an amateur level um, and I picked it very uh, aware of the uh, the pitch of the instrument. I like the, the, the timbre, which is the, the color of the sound of the cello, and I like uh, its pitch. It's not too high, it's not too low. It has a very human uh, level pitch, I find. Um, so in general, I think I'm drawn to string instruments. And uh, Is it because uh, stars vibrate as well? Um, well, Possibly, uh, but of course a drum also vibrates and uh, that's true. Um, if you any any kind of instrument is making sound because of the vibrations, but for me uh, being able, I mean the, I like the way a string instrument works uh, and the types of sounds, the, the color of the sounds that they produce. So um, I've actually w uh, watched a lot of documentaries mm -hmm. and I keep coming back to the same theme, which is the different phases of a star, of the life of a star. Mm -hmm. And I would be interested to know, what is your favorite phase of a star and why? <laughs> um, yeah, well, phases of stars, for a general audience, it might be even abstract. What does it mean? Because uh, you you go back to, to what, what is a star, actually. A star is a gigantic ball of gas. Uh, and uh, actually, it turns out that stars are born and they they go through uh, what we can compare with a lifetime and then they end their life, so they're not there forever. So in that sense, we can speak of different chapters in yeah. their life. It's funny because and I've also heard of uh, stellar nurseries, yes, which is kind of a personification with uh, our real world. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, we like to personify uh, these objects. Of course, they're not uh, living beings in the sense that we understand it, but, but they do go through a whole evolution and if you see where stars are born uh, in giant molecular clouds, we can call those stellar nurseries. So this is a very nice phase. Um, then they go through the, the main phase of their life, which is when they are doing fusion. So they create more complex elements from simpler elements. Uh, that's the, the phase that most stars spend most of their life in. And then they retire and then they die. Um, in a beautiful supernova. Yeah, not all of them. Not all uh, of them. The heaviest ones will turn into a supernova. The other ones will just quietly die with a very 
quiet swan song and this is what my research is about i actually my i can't say that i have a favorite because i think our son they sh she sh our son should be in our favorite face because our son is now at uh, the height of uh, its life and uh, we are here thanks to that fact but i myself study stars that are in a later phase of their life that are already going, yeah, they're in retirement and they're going towards their end. And uh, so you mentioned that you don't really have a favorite phase, let's say, mm -hmm. but is there a phase that produces more interesting waves that, than another? Interestingly, uh, we see these sound waves, we, we observe these sound waves uh, in, in many phases. So we see them in very young stars, we see them in stars at the prime of their life, we see them in retired stars, and we see them just before they die. And what our job is as, uh, as uh, astro-seismologists, astrophysicists studying these vibrations in stars, is to figure out where the star is and to get more information about that particular phase in its life. But we see it in any phase. But then, um, at the beginning of the, uh, the show, we heard a few stars, and we heard stars, the, the sounds were blended. We heard stars in, in many different phases. We heard retired stars, we heard young stars, we heard dying stars, all at the same time. They produce a very nice cosmic symphony. Um, but for, for me, as a scientist, each one of these sounds is, is marvelous because if we wouldn't have this sound, we would be completely in the blind uh, as far as the internal workings of the star is concerned. Yep. And thanks to these variations that we observe, thanks to these sound waves in the stars, we know much more. So, um, for instance, how would you listen to stars? If I was an astronomer and I wanted to listen to a star, how would I do that? Um, yeah, first of all, we don't directly listen. So the, the sounds, they cannot reach us. The sounds are trapped inside the stars. They're in, imprisoned in the star. But what happens when a star vibrates, when it undergoes these sound waves, we uh, actually see the brightness ver vary. So we see these variations in the light, and from that we get back to the sound. And then if we want, we can sonify it and we can listen to it. Uh, but generally, we also just look at the graph on the screen and then we try to interpret that. Okay. Yeah. Well, because uh, we're kind of running out of time, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you for our final question. Do you have a favorite star? I do. Which one is it? It's called RR Larry. Uh, it's a star that I've been studying for more than 15 years now. Uh, and uh, it's a star that uh, has, yeah, that is retired, but that has so many mysteries and that we use as a kind of uh, benchmark to figure out a lot about many other stars. Very interesting. Well, thanks a lot for coming, Catherine. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Still trees, if the roots are not deep, even if you remove them, 
changes 